Welcome everyone to another episode of the Geopolitical Pivot. It's your host, Samash McDowell, and we have a full house today with three new individuals. One, I know, two are complete strangers, but <laughs> they are now friends um, due to Wainwright. Wainwright, how are you doing? Pretty good, pretty good. That's good. Well, um, as I continue to suffer from my congestions due to this allergy blitzkrieg that's just constantly bringing me down i'm going to allow you to introduce the three people and then part of the culture uh, here at the pivot they will talk a little bit about themselves um and then we'll go into the topics that we have for today sure yeah so we have three newcomers and i'm just going to go clockwise but we have jake umholtz uh cowboy calvin mcnelly <laughs> and then we have veronica prochko but i mean uh jake if you want to introduce yourself and yeah, uh, so I'm a current undergraduate student, and uh, I'm going to be working in management consulting upon my graduation. Yeah, yeah, like Jake, I'm an undergraduate student at Hillsdale College, um, studying uh, political science and financial management, and I'm um, still undecided what we're going to do after graduation, but we got to figure that out here pretty soon. He's got a voice for radio, guys. <laughs> so we got Jay and the Cowboy Cowboy. We got to replace him. Go. <laughs> so we got Jay and, and Cowboy here, and then we have Veronica as well. Hi, everyone. I'm Veronica. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm a current master's student getting a master's in national security affairs, and I work in international development in the DRG sector. Fantastic. Um, so today, we're, I guess we're looking at um, the visualizations regarding the assessed control of terrain in Ukraine, uh, main Russian maneuver um, axis as of March 10th, so about two days ago. Um, I mean, as kind of like what Wendell alluded to on um, Thursday, is that we kind of seen this pattern where you know, Russia will occupy and then Ukraine will, will take it back. Russia will occupy Ukraine will take it back. However, we have seen um, since the start of the invasion some significant strategic uh, successes by uh, Russian uh, forces uh, taking over swaths of land in northern Ukraine uh, towards the, uh, the border of both Russia and Belarus. Uh, we've seen some significant gains in eastern and southern Ukraine, uh, including the shelons of Mariupol. Um, with Odessa potentially being the next target. Uh, we also know the, the Russian regrouping of their troops um, outside of Kiev. Um, but essentially what it seems to be the case um, that's really significant in my understanding is this growing of the connecting land bridge um, in south southeast Ukraine, uh, which provides Russia with solidified dominance in the, the Sea of Azov, uh, which is a huge potential area of energy resources. Um, alluded to constantly, um, a lot of the Soviet Union's uh, industrial zones or um, her base in Ukraine, predominantly in eastern Ukraine, so east, southeastern Ukraine. Um, this also provides opportunities for Russia um, to potentially, as Wayne Wright likes to talk about logistics <laughs> and containment, um, looking at it from a maritime naval containment point of view or a logistics point of view, um, it's potential they're able to uh, strengthen their positions um, in the naval, uh, like it's the Black Sea region, uh, without really necessarily depending on the Bosphorus, uh, more so um, for the entry of new of munitions, aid, etc. Um, this this land bridge is significant. Um, so from there, 
we can sort of kind of start our discussions off with what we're observing and pretty much this is a free-for-all anybody can chime in um, on what we're what we're seeing nowadays well I'll, I'll just do a quick piggyback off of that like you mentioned um, the Russians are kind of consolidating their control around Mariupol mm -hmm. and as you said that's where a lot of the Ukraine industry is located industrial parks and, and their ability to produce these goods I mean so even if the Russians don't necessarily control those areas as long as they can threaten those links um, that that's a severe shock to an already you know kind of crippled uh, Ukrainian economy and mm -hmm. so we'll, we'll just see how that develops as, as these things move forward and the other thing that kind of stood out to me um, when this new kind of assessment came out is the number of Ukrainian protests in Russian controlled zones that are kind of occurring and multiplying and I haven't done too much research into that myself um, but I'm, I'm kind of hoping as, as anyone else in the podcast kind of looked at that and have anything to say about maybe the protests or the propaganda that's going on in that in that area feed that check you yes I mean the one thing I would say about that is I think this kind of goes off of what people have been saying about how much emotion is present in Ukraine and how much um, everyone's kind of fighting and holding and lasting longer than anticipated and so I would say that the protests and and the desire to fight against Russia kind of all out no giving up I think Ukraine's been kind of pre preparing for this for a really long time eight years I think since 2014 they've yeah. expected this and mm -hmm. so I think that these regions that are currently occupied have been preparing for this I'm sure there's tons of people who have stockpiles that they've been working on since 2014 it's just a Ukrainian um, mindset because they always anticipated Russia to come in. Yeah, some of the crazy, I mentioned this on the last podcast, but I'm still kind of shook by it. Uh, Vasily Lomachenko, right, who was, I think he was a middleweight or maybe a lightweight boxing mm -hmm. champion. He was very good in the, in the 2010s and early, uh, late 2000s. I mean, he, he snuck through Moldova into Odessa and now he's, he's fighting with one of the um, uh, irregular kind of Ukrainian forces in Ukraine. Like, he gave up millions. Millions to do this, right? Yeah. And of course, we know about the Klitsch clothes, right? I mean, they've been there, you know, for decades now. But I mean, they took up arms in, in Kiev, and mm -hmm. it's it's just kind of surprising to see who is showing up in Ukraine and why they're doing it. I think uh, another factor that we also should observe in this is that um, as the conventional kind of progression of the Russian troops seem to be in some ways slowing down. We're starting to see the usage of loitering munitions. Um, in addition to the Russians trying to figure out ways to overcome their current geographic and weather um, difficulties. Um, we, they, already, they were already having problems um, when it came to getting through the terrain, which is interesting enough. Um, but nonetheless, it's now the notion of everything that was essentially frozen is now coming to um, like marshy, murky. Um, in addition to that, they're getting into still continual logistic problems. Then Window did talk about how essentially their convoys, or at least their forces, are intended to work within 72-hour cycles. So mm -hmm. they're supposed to get to a particular point within 72 hours. Then once they get there, they'll get enough supplies to continue for another 72 hours. But then after our, after our previous podcast, uh, Wendell informed us that that 40-mile-long convoy, not even there anymore. Mm -hmm. um, and there's different speculation as to why that is. 
Um, but still, there's the notion that what we've seen, whether it was with that convoy or even various videos when it came to Ukrainian asymmetric warfare against uh, Russian armor columns, is that the sheer, I guess, the, the, the momentum of Russian conventional mobilization towards Kyiv, it's starting to, to slow, but it's starting to get into a transformation to now that's becoming a brutal asymmetric war. Um, and that, what I see, at least what I'm thinking, is going to become much more brutal in the sense of it being a purely conventional force, or well, war, essentially. Um, now we're getting to urban warfare. And then we're not just talking about Damascus-type um, urban warfare, where Russia had the strategic, the tactical advantage. We're now talking about essentially two peers that, you know, Ukrainian historical military training, that due to it being from the Soviet Union, they're kind of familiar with Russian tactics. Um, we're dealing with, in some cases, in some areas, peer weapon systems. Mm -hmm peer equipment, peer tactical understandings of the terrain. Um, now we're seeing the usage of EU and U.S. military equipment being utilized, but this time, rather than a conventional sense, in a much more asymmetrical sense. Um, yesterday, a video came out with uh, a Russian armored column um, being asymmetrically attacked or targeted by an anti-tank um, weapon system, um, completely out of nowhere. I mean, I guess I don't know what for me because I was a little tipsy at the point when I was watching. I was like, oh my God, where did this missile come from? <laughs> but it was this notion of, well, now we're kind of seeing the use of the, the notions of modern conventional weapons being utilized at an asymmetric purpose um, to defeat um, the Russians, um, but also in a way to target their Achilles heel, which is their logistics. If you want to target or even their supply chains and supply convoys. Uh, we talked about this, I think, two podcasts ago where it was like, well, with these type of weapons that Ukraine is receiving, their targets shouldn't necessarily be Russian, the Russian ground troops in particular, but it should be their their supply convoys. It should be their logistical personnel. That way, um, they're able to essentially halt any type of Russian advancements and by then essentially um, try to overtake attack the tactical battle space. And it's interesting you brought up the urban warfare type thing because it seems like um, I was very surprised how quickly, and I think it was, to your point, they were preparing for this, the quickly the Ukrainians were willing to give uh, arms to their civilians and say, you know, we're going to defend this no matter what it is, and if it comes to urban warfare, then we'll stay and fight and do that. So I think that was so interesting that maybe the Ukrainians like, okay, we're, like it's going gonna, it's gonna to happen, so we'll have this ready to go, and I think that's uh, so so impressive. That, that's what I really took away from it. And I think that goes along with kind of like the propaganda, right? Like that, as soon as like the videos hit Twitter and hit like the mainstream news, it's like you see like the the old lady with with the guns, and you see like the the civilians coming in and grabbing the guns out of the boxes. Um, to me, it seems like they were they were like ready and prepared for for this. Think about that, Faye. Well, I mean, I, I would say that everything that has happened in the past at least four years in Russia was kind of leading up to this moment. Mm -hmm. In like, Russia and Ukraine? Both in, of them? Yeah. in both of them, yeah. specifically in Russian politics domestically. I think that the West kind of missed a big, you know, mm -hmm. this is coming kind of signaling yeah, sure. through with Putin, with Navalny, with the constitutional changes in the Duma and so forth, that I think that the only reason why this didn't happen in the winter of 2021 was because of Kazakhstan. 
I guess the really the only thing that kind of postponed um, this for Putin, but Ukraine was like, we're ready. When right. Oh, that's interesting. So you think that the Kazakhstan, the troubles there, that was the reason that they didn't they didn't launch the invasion earlier, where their you know vehicles would be better suited for the mm-hmm. well, for the I think campaign. I think well, they had mobilized troops and things were you know moving towards the border and people were talking about it right in mm-hmm. December, and then Kazakhstan had their oil issues. And the protests, and so Russia had to divert some of their troops to go into Kazakhstan, and I think that kind of stalled things for Putin because I think his plan was to capitalize on winter for Europe yeah. and the gas, and he kind of got delayed. But I think because he had already mobilized and the propaganda machine that he's been working on in Russia has been working so heavily, and the public is so behind this, they were all like riled up and ready to go that he couldn't postpone to winter 2022. He needed to go in now. Specifically, when you think about the Biden administration and all these small factors, and how Zelensky had a negative popularity and so forth, he was like, "I have to go now." He was pulling at what thirty percent with the Ukrainians. Like it was, it was, it was. Putin's like, "I can't postpone. I gotta go now." Look at him now. Uh, Well, yeah, he's he's totally. He's like, "What the hell happened?" (laughs) I was talking with Jake about this the other day. There's people who, you know, a couple weeks ago had no idea where Ukraine was, Mm -hmm. who Zelensky was, and now he's like a household name. And there's Articles in the AP comparing him to Winston Churchill and things like that. It's so fascinating um, how fast things change. And now, you know, he's doing these Zoom meetings and all this other stuff. It's right. it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's, uh, it's And everyone cool. wants to be a mediator. Yes. Yeah. 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 I, I love how hungry he's like, please come to Budapest where you first came and got screwed over for, for a talk. Yeah. Well, I mean, some countries are not being mediators. Like Poland's recent, you know, attempt to bring, you know, MiG-29s yep. to Ukraine. I mean, that that's an interesting topic I kind of wanted to look into. They wanted to give yeah. um, Ukraine essentially their MiG stash, but the other side of that is that they wanted the U.S. to essentially replace that with F-16s. And we denied it, um, but simply not because we didn't want to help, but more so because if we're looking at literally not just logistics, but it's like we literally have to build these for you to replace all of your MiGs. We don't have enough now to just give you whatever it is that you give to Ukraine. Um, so we declined it on that notion, but we did just pass a major defense. Well, it's, we yeah. didn't fully pass it yet, but it's in the works of like a 1.6 or so trillion dollar defense bill and about 3.2 billion of that is um, ensuring proper military equipment goes to Ukraine. Um, that's a substantial military def- uh, military defense um, bill. Um, but, I mean, if you go into the nitty-gritty, you know, like I said, 3.2 of that goes towards very crucial necessary equipment um, in addition to, you know, armed forces funding um, and additional other uh, programs that needs to be funded. Yeah, just getting the numbers, I mean, the Ukraine aid that's been allocated in this bill, it's about... Thirteen point six billion. Oh, thirteen. Yeah. Well, and, that was off. Well, then, and then, if I, and then, no, no, no. You it breaks down a little bit more. So I mean, three point five billion is going directly to uh, military equipment for Ukraine, mm-hmm. and then about four billion is for humanitarian efforts, which I assume is to resettle, rehouse, mm-hmm. and repatriate, you know, repatriate the Ukrainians who are currently in Eastern Europe, and then about six point five billion of this aid package is going directly to the Pentagon to kind of bolster NATO. And so I don't okay. know if that means they're going to fund more battalions in the Baltics. I'm not sure exactly what that entails, mm-hmm. um, but we'll just have to see. 
Yeah, I mean, the weird thing about that that uh, Polish-Ukraine aborted kind of arms sale was how public it was kind of issued. Like, I, I first heard when I saw the Polish foreign minister talking about it, he's like, you know, yeah, we're going to give these MiGs to, to the U.S., and then U.S. is going to give them to Ukraine. I'm like, why are you, why are you saying this so loud? Like, it was very interesting how public yeah. the, this proposed deal was. I mean, and I'm just curious if you guys had any kind of idea why. It could be a particular tactic. Um, it can be utilized for many different reasons. I mean, it could also be a way of showing, it could be a, a message directly sent to Putin um, that essentially you have helped unify um, the West, at least militarily speaking. Um, this is what, this is because of this, the, all of this is happening because of you. Uh, we are talking about getting F-15s, F-16s into Poland. We're talking about giving MiGs, entire MiG uh, caches to the Ukrainians. We're talking about giving them um, new anti-tank missile defense systems, anti-air missile defense systems. Uh, we're talking about giving them additional ammunition that they'll need. I know when this all started, um, the EU provided a five, I think it was a 500 million euro um, package of military equipment and assistance to the Ukrainians. Mm -hmm. Like, that's that's not cheap, um, but and you bring up like the a good point in so far as like it's unifying like the West like militarily like right now like Germany's announced they're finally gonna reach the threshold right. of two percent. I don't know about anybody else. <laughs> When every time Germany is like, we want to increase defense spending, I start to sweat. Well, I, think learned, I, think, I think they learned a lesson the last few times. Like, you right. thought that the first time. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. What's so interesting about that, too, is like so many Germans like like believe that. Like they're like the response they're, they're to like the announcement. Do it. Hello? If we just. But I mean, but that's also. Making that public is also an indication. Is also going to be utilized for propaganda towards Russia. Like, hey, we've been through this before. Can we not? Um, we got away with it. Yeah, we got away with it. So. <laughs> well, well, and then my question. I mean, yeah, it's good propaganda for the polls to say, oh, we're giving th these military equipment to Ukraine. Mm -hmm. But then it's also very bad propaganda for us for the Pentagon to just shut it down. And, also, and, and, and like the Pentagon basically was like, what the heck are you, you guys, I mean the polls, what are you guys doing? Right. And, and that, that's kind of troubling because that shows like there's fissures in what the overall strategy should be yeah. in NATO to combat mm -hmm. Russia. And, but, and you thought, I mean, why, why do you think that is, Samaj? Why? Yeah, I mean, why do you think the Pentagon's response was so vitriolically against this, this proposal? Yeah, well, Veronica, going, you know? well, I would say that I think oh, uh, Poland, sorry. It was definitely a signaling attempt to try to get the U.S. more involved. Yeah. Because they know they can't do anything. Right. Because, one, they're handcuffed by the EU. Mm -hmm. And, two, they themselves are not the most economically and militarily, right. you know, right. muscular. Um. And, so, <laughs> and so I would say they were trying really hard to push or force the U.S.'s hand. That makes and sense. And the U.S. was like, no, no, no. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We are I can not getting involved that. I definitely can agree way. with that. Um. Yet. And, and what was curious though was was the way the Pentagon responded is like yeah we're not we're not going to take these MiG 29s off of Poland's hands we're not going to fly them into Ukraine. What I haven't been able to figure out is okay I understand why the Pentagon did that right because Russia they issued a statement saying any aircraft that are coming from NATO air bases into Ukraine that'll be considered as a widening conflict. Mm -hmm. Why we couldn't ship them over land? 
and, and that's that's the confusing thing to me. Why couldn't we take these the U.S. Why can we take these MiG 29s mm -hmm. and ship them overland into Odessa, kind of the same way all these foreign fighters are coming in? And I don't know. I mean, there's certain logistical problems to doing mm -hmm. that. I mean, it's hard to transport a whole a whole MiG 29, but I'm certain it could be done. And and I'm I'm just curious as to why the Pentagon's response was like so horribly against this proposal. I, I personally think the polls, they didn't even come to the United States when they were considering this deal. I wonder if it's because people are like afraid of widening the conflict. I think, I think that's yeah. like kind of like the big, yeah. like keep it, keep it as much as the, I guess the strategy might be or the, the mindset to keep mm -hmm. it contained to within Ukraine. I don't, I would not, I don't think anyone would want to like widen the conflict. I think that'd mm -hmm. be a, the mindset for that. I mean, because think about it. Think about if Poland did just decide to say, you know what, forget it. We're just going to give Ukraine all these MiGs, and then you have Ukrainian pilots uh, flying MiGs out of Poland into Ukraine, and then they start targeting Russians. At that point, it's like, um, well, one, these MiGs aren't repainted to just to be Ukrainians. So if they have, like, let's say, the Poles, um, uh, similar for the Air Force works, in type of indication on that on these particular MiGs without being refurbished as far as like paint jobs, etc. Then, from the Russian perception, you can see that as oh, Poland just entered the war. Mm -hmm. um, that in itself would essentially create this literally into a world war, where you know, well, if Russia then attacks Poland, okay, now we have to get dragged in. Um, so we can see this from an optics point of view, where yeah, um, the actual delivery of the MiGs is a problem because it's like okay, well, you can fly them into Ukraine, okay, whatever. But then again. We already know that most likely if they get flown into Ukraine nine times out of ten, Russia will target it with missiles. It's that simple. Um, if you try to take it to Odessa, Russia will target them with naval cruise missile attacks. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a matter of figuring, okay, how once we acquire these MiGs, how can we incorporate this into the actual battle space or the airspace without the optics of it being, or Poland just entered the war. Remember, Russia is trying to get Belarus as much as possible into this conflict as much as possible. So if any type of inclination that, oh, Poland providing MiGs and these MiGs flying out of Poland, it's an indication that the EU slash United States is now officially widening this war, which is giving them the criminal legitimacy to then do whatever they feel or seek fit into this situation. Um, the other thing I find interesting is that Russia is already attempting to widen the conflict. We saw from the Central African Republic. The military is like, okay, well, we're going to send some fighters over to Ukraine. Excuse me. They're getting everybody. They're getting everybody. <laughs> Even the Syrians. Yeah. Um, the Syrian government said they're going to pay the, the soldiers who go over $3,000 a month, which apparently uh, 50, is 50% 50 more than what they make on average monthly. Um, so it kind of reminds me of that Dave Chappelle skit when he's playing George Bush. Bring no, no, I'm serious. <laughs> like, no, when Dave Chappelle's playing George Bush, right? No, no, <laughs> let me get this out. It's great. So, yes, yes. Well, and, and the reporter asked Dave Chappelle or Bush, you know, who who is joining us in this in this role against in this conflict against Iraq? And Dave Chappelle's like. You know, England's joining us. Japan sending PlayStation. <laughs> we got Africa Bambata and the Zulu Nation. Like it's, it's just you know, but they're, they're coming. Yeah, but Russia, Russia is, is Russia taking is everybody. In the, yeah, well, Russia's taking every like Syrian foreign fighters, people, you know, soldiers from. But then that also lets you that then makes you reconsider their and Chechen, uh, the Chechens. Excuse me. Who are um, well known for war crimes. So. That's a whole. <laughs> 
That's a whole nother podcast. <laughs> That's a whole other three podcasts. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but that also brings, you know, the no, call into question um, the legitimacy of Russia's strategies, uh, especially the Wagner Group in mm-hmm. Syria and Central African Republic. Um, if we look at it since 2019, I believe, uh, when Russia was really pushing for their, um, like their Russian Africa um, security military restructuring um, relations where they were able to essentially make a deal with at least 19 um, African countries on just military cells, let alone Wagner Group operating offices that are in Africa alone, uh, which also makes you think, well, did he also pull the same strategy that Qasem Soleimani did, mm-hmm. uh, where essentially we create these types of security partnerships and um, through that security partnership is like a quid pro quo. I will do what you need me to do here in your particular country, whether that's to sustain the current regime, whether that's to overthrow the regime, uh, whether that's provide training, etc. But in exchange, when I need you, you're there. Um, so we see Russian observations of what Iran has, you know, has essentially mastered since the 19, well, since the Lebanese Civil War. Um, this notions of client proxy states, well, not even not even states, but non-state actors. Um, so that's also a unique a unique foundation um, to be examined. You have Russia bringing in Africans, Syrians, Chechens, essentially PMCs at this at, in, in this sense. Um, while we have people from across the Western world, even just around the world, coming to Ukraine on the Ukraine side uh, to operate in the sense of a uh, a private military role as well. I think that's interesting too because the like Ukrainian dysphoria is so large. Like yeah. it's like the majority of of the dysphoria is, <laughs> is uh, as Veronica testifies <laughs> is uh, of like would would be of like that prime like military fighting age. Um, so it's interesting to see how how so many people from or who are established in the West are are coming into the conflict themselves as individuals. And the like, um, the response from like Western uh, like tech companies and like Western private like the private sector as a whole and their response to um, to the conflict. Yeah, the cra- the craziest thing going off that is a story I heard from a former FBI guy. His proposal for how the U.S. should kind of help the Ukrainians was we should basically free up all the Ukrainian American pilots. They're currently flying for Air Force, Navy, and uh, and and you know. Air- our military and just to send them over to Ukraine as private citizens and sign up. Kind of like the Flying Tigers did in, 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 <laughs> in the lead up to... What, what was that, Veronica? <laughs> my dad could go. Yes, your dad could go. Yes, that's right. You can fly warthogs over there. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's crazy. Yeah, no, you're right about the, the demographics. I mean, there is, there is a wide array of Ukrainians of fighting age. It, yeah, thanks for bringing that up. I totally forgot about it. Well, I mean, on that note, even though it's not about the diaspora, um, I had a consultant in my work in international development that I had to evacuate back to Ukraine because he's Ukrainian mm-hmm. and um, he touched like I got him back like February 22nd right and then of course the shit hit the fan t- mm-hmm. February 24th mm-hmm. and um, no you can curse all you want it's alright yeah. not bad um, and and last I heard from him he had evacuated his mom to Poland and he had just joined the fight in Kiev he was 30 years old and I was like that's the mindset of just a lot of 
of the people there. And my brother was also like, I'm going to join the Foreign Legion. Mm-hmm. But I was like, please don't. <laughs> <laughs> please do not. Yeah, an, an interesting consequence, no matter how this Ukraine-Russian war plays out, will be the state of the Russian military. Because by the end of this, the Russian military will have experienced both fighting state militaries and non-state actors. And that's something even the U.S. Army military doesn't have. So they're going to come out of that with that experience, and they're also going to have a very experienced NCO Corps, and they're going to figure out ways to either reform their logistical and communication systems or improvise and work with what they have. So, like, I mean, I hope, I hope that everything works out well, but no matter how it works out, Russia's going to end up with a, with a much more experienced yeah. uh, military. And, that, and that's something we're going to need to watch in, in the future. I think, I think with that, too, it's like... It's almost like limited as well because they're the population decline in yeah. in their shrinking population. I mean, Russia still has not recovered uh, from the world wars, you know. And so, even if they have like this experience, it's like, where, how long does that last? You know, like history with that, it's usually like a generational thing. Yeah. Uh, so if you know the the world order, if this is only you know. A one a one time step and the conflict doesn't widen. Where where does that take them? You know, what's that overall grand strategy? Where do they what what do they gain? Yeah, I mean the demographic collapse is big, but twenty years in the short term is a long time. So it's a long time yeah. for that NCO core to age out or, you know, get promoted or, or die off. So, I think in the short term, this war will benefit the Russian military. It might not benefit the Russian regime or the Russian people. That's that's the only point I was going off of that. You shake your head, Veronica. What well, are you thinking? I'm not sure what Putin's trying to do here, um, aside from just get Ukraine and get away with it, right? So if he's not successful in that, kind of, what's what's the aftermath? Right, here? like because what's the next step? Ukraine, for the for the sake of argument, doesn't actually really want Donbass region anyway. They've been problematic for decades, and so I think that if anything, they really want Crimea back. But what obstacles are we having here when it comes to? How successful Russia can be because unless they just take Ukraine then they I guess he gets what he wants and then he kind of opens the door to Moldova and Georgia because he wants both of those as well um, but say he's not successful what does that look like well, what I, does Ukraine look like after that yeah Do they I, get their country back I always thought like this invasion was a way to ensure the independence of Crimea or ensure you know the independence of the breakaway republics and then Russia's domination of Crimea and then kind of negotiate this as well, like went on the military and then negotiated in real life in international law um, mm-hmm. at the diplomatic table. And I think that it's been problematic because Ukrainians have been resisting left and right, not just in the country, but outside the country. But I mean, on top of that, you also have to look at the, um, the wider regional um, implications of Putin's um, aggressions in Ukraine. Um, Georgia submitted the application and joined the EU two weeks ahead of schedule. Um, Moldova, Sweden, and Finland made their t- made their um, interest in joining NATO possibly public. Um, addition to that, um, you know, Australia stopped the importation of Russian crude oil, um, which I don't know what impact that would have, but still, that's, they're doing their bit. It's, <laughs> it's still pretty right. significant. Um, these are major strategic growing blunders for the Russians um, for this desire of Putin. And so the real question has to be raised, well, what's literally 
more important really to, I guess, the average Russian in this case, where, okay, you get Ukraine, but now Sweden, Finland, Moldova, and Georgia now joined the West. Um, the one fear that Putin's always stated was, oh, well, having NATO troops directly on the border of Russia, unless I might track, you have a massive border um, with Sweden and Finland combined. Uh, in addition to potentially, let's say, the EU, uh, Georgia joining the EU, and they become part of their EU defense um, little apparatus and then potentially join NATO. Um, those are very significant um, blunders where you, you would have NATO EU personnel on your borders on three different fronts. Now, this is something like, so you're saying Moldova and Georgia, they're applying for NATO membership or EU membership? Not Moldova. I'm sorry, not Moldova. Uh, Kosovo. I'm sorry. Okay. Kosovo. Um, uh, Finland and Sweden made their interest in joining NATO public. Oh, yeah, because Kosovo's... Right. Not Moldova. Um, okay. Kosovo. Um, Georgia has put in their application to join the EU. Okay. Uh, two weeks ahead of schedule that yeah. they intended to do it uh, for domestic uh, reasons, but then also now, you know, nostalgia from 2008. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they're, <terrifying>. <laughs> <laughs> they're very terrified. But even though that shows the strategy even for what Putin implemented in 2008 with Georgia, um, by taking little bits and pieces of your land mm -hmm. to, to, to the point where it does initiate some domestic upheaval undermining national sovereignty. Um, and then from that point, you essentially can fund proxies and allow them to essentially conduct the war that you can in the moment with the intention that you hone in or you craft a strategic space to the point where then once you invade the country that you have targeted so weak to that point where they have to either collapse or agree to your terms, which is what Putin saw, thought that he would be able to do with the big ass country known as Ukraine. Yeah. No, it's not going to work that way. I'm sorry. Ukrainians and Russians have been fighting for how long now? <laughs> There's so much historical memory. Literally, there. like you... <laughs> And not once have Ukrainians just rolled over and said, okay, you're right, I'm sorry, we're just going to do whatever it is that Moscow wants. I'm, no, that's not how that works. Did we forget about going back to Kiev and Rus? Have we talked about the whole notions of Puja to say that, oh, we're just one big family? But last time I checked, big family, well, no, World War I was basically a family dispute between the Germans, the, the Brits, the Russians, the Austrians. They were all related. You're taking us through a trip through time now? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought about it. The way that my mind operates. It's oh, yeah, just yeah, like yeah. one big family dispute. Wait, no, that was World War One. <laughs> like they were all cousins and millions of people died. It goes back to World War One. Yeah, <laughs> I would say of all the, the post-Soviet republics, Ukraine is the <laughs> right. most like, poorly treated. Exactly. people murdered. Versus Georgia, not so much. You Georgia's know, not like Georgia. <laughs> I wonder why. <laughs> Ukraine's are going, no, not you. Um, but... <laughs> but looking looking at I mean even the Holodomor is still a like they don't forget about that and the Ukrainians do not forget about the Holodomor um, that's a significant stain on any type of Ukrainian Russian relations if that's ever a thing um, but Putin's strategy of, of establishing breakaway republics in its near abroad countries is very interesting because NATO's unwritten rule, right, is it, it will not accept members that don't have territorial integrity. Mm -hmm. That's one of the reasons that, you know, of course, Georgia isn't in, Moldova, I don't think, is in um, with the Transnistria, right, the, the breakaway republic there. And that's why Ukraine isn't in, you know, ever since, you know, Crimea hasn't been a, has been kind of a Russian principality. 
and it's going to cause issues for NATO now because they, now they have to reassess, well, are we going to start letting all these countries in and coordinate our strategies that way, or are we going to keep them out? And then what does that mean for you know policy going forward? So it's just an interesting thought. Another interesting thing that I, I've been looking at, too, is the economic sanctions that the U.S. has been putting on Russia and how they're kind of affecting us at home. So I think on March 10th, you know, Biden kind of announced that uh, the U.S. are going to dramatically downgrade their, their trade status with Russia, so they're no longer going to be a most favored nation. Uh, and, and Veronica is rolling her eyes. But this is important now. We don't, we don't, get, we don't get good deals on, on caviar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but we don't get good deals on caviar. We don't get good deals on alcohol. And there's other, there's other issues like what as What else well. comes from Russia? <laughs> what, do you, what, what else comes from Russia, Veronica? You tell me. <laughs> oil, oil, right? Oil. No, but I mean, we, we, we import, I think, what, about 8% of our energy needs from Russia. And it's not insignificant. And, and the fact that, that the Biden administration has revoked this status has caused massive shockwaves throughout the supply chain industry. So, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure. You got, you, Veronica, of course, you've got a car. I know you do. And, but you've seen, and you've seen gas rise. I think it 80, hurts. Yeah, gas has risen from what was it, it's like three, 3.80 to four. 450 now. Yeah. And it's, it's 380 last yeah. week. And, it, and this is only in D.C., like in Virginia. It's risen a lot more than that. It's, it's up to $5 in some places in Virginia. And this is going to have ramifications, I think, politically at home because Americans, we love to drive cars, right? And so, and so if, if, we're gonna, if, if the U.S. is going to make a stand and say, we're launching these economic sanctions against Russia to, to make a point and not let bad men win, it's, it's also going to hurt us economically. We're going to have to reevaluate how our foreign policy is going. And I think we need to be careful because there are some things, like oil especially, where it's one of the, it's like a commodity, right? So oil is kind of oil. So you can, anytime you get it, you can get it. So if, if China's just like, okay, we'll take more, then mm. that's fine. And, and there's no guarantee also that Russian oil might go somewhere else first and then come to the United States too. So that can happen also. And so American politicians need to be very careful about... Yes, we want to punish them for their for their actions, and they deserve it. But you can't, especially I think Americans, and they, like we talked about, Ukraine has done a very good job of making their case to the world. But if you're paying six dollars a gallon of gas, that's going to be very hard. Sometimes it's yeah. it's difficult for Americans, especially somewhere all the way across the world. And you know, hopefully, you know, we can be be strong in this in this. Uh, you know, we're paying with these hopefully for a short period of time these sanctions, but. Um, it's a calculation American politicians have to make. And I think what's interesting, too, is, like, with, like, the conflict, right? Like, Ukraine's kind of, like, what, the the breadbasket of Europe in some parts. Uh, um, plus, to all the, the, like, natural resource exports, like, you're going to see, like, tech prices rise. You're mm. going to see agricultural prices rise. Uh, and now oil rising. Um, so, I mean, I think this is with the nature of any sort of international conflict, uh, you're gonna have, it's gonna hurt. It's gonna hurt wherever you are. Um, so to keep going from that, and what I thought was like a very interesting like take on like sanctions is like sanctions on like oligarchs, on like the Russian oligarchs. Um, so there's like a Russian oligarch saw uh, like big 300 foot mega yacht gets like seized off the Malfi coast in Italy, or uh, a Russian Russian oligarch's plane gets grounded in the UK and they seize it, um, seizing like you know real estate assets, um, which I thought is like a, uh, an interesting strategy, right? To kind of maybe sub uh, 
target, like more strategic target to go after the Russian regime to sort of mitigate uh, the, the feelings at home, right? Or the feelings of even like Russian citizens. But I mean, that's, and that might be a prudent strategy, right? But like, this Biden's announcement a couple days ago that he was going to downgrade Russia's trade status across the board, not just with the mm -hmm. oligarchs. I mean, that's, that's causing massive shockwaves, not just in oil and gas, but in weird ways. Like food, like inf inflation for food prices, it's risen about 7.9% just in a month. I mean, and, that, and that hits that hits like lower class people and even even mid, like it hits a lot of people hard well it's also because like russia has actually been able to modernize and develop the agricultural production and output um they are a large agricultural produ agricultural producer um at least primarily for um in europe i don't know the percentage in the united states but they've definitely been able to um really revamp their agricultural production so by doing that um like you said, you know, that will demonstrate, that will have impacts on other sectors. Um, even with the whole situation with uh, the, the oil and gas thing, um, there's something called um, like a deadweight loss. When we talk about economics and markets, where essentially we're, then we think about deadweight loss, then we talk about tariffs. Uh, but I mean, in this way, we're sanctioning, which you're supposed to have the same impact as an embargo or a tariff. But, uh, what a dead weight loss is, is essentially um, whenever you start to, when you implement a tariff or some type of regulation in one particular industry, mm -hmm. it starts to bleed into any other industry that's connected to that particular industry mm -hmm. that's being... Even targeted. tangentially. Right. Yeah. Um, so, like for example, anything that has to do with oil and gas, when they have to do petrochemicals, pharmaceuticals... Which is everything. Uh, which is everything. Because, I mean, we move food on that, right? We move right. everything. And so, the offshoot of that price um, that's now being implemented will bleed into the prices of all other products that deal with industries that are connected to energy and gas, which, unfortunately, is everything. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's going to suck, um, in my personal opinion, um, Biden should have continued with the, was it the, the Keystone pipeline? Yeah. Um, I, and I won't even blame him completely. I'm not going to blame him. Like, like Biden's anti-energy stuff was imprudent in hindsight, right? But then the other part, again, was the Trump administration's tax relief bill. Like, I, I don't... I, I'm just gonna say, like, it added what 1.5 trillion mm -hmm. to the deficit over 10 years. Like, it, that did not help matters at all. And we got to recognize, like, whatever economic decisions we make now, we'll have ramifications, you know, a decade down the line, generation down the line. And you know, we just have to go forward thinking, like, we got to really think through what we're doing, whether it be economic sanctions, economic policy, to avoid it really hurting the bottom line of American citizens. I think that's an interesting point, only because. Going back to the oligarchs for just one second, I think that our strategy in terms of trying to send this message through these big sanctions is to try to sway these oligarchs or sway any kind of public opinion in Russia, which we have had that effect in the sense that, you know, there's hashtag not Russia's war, Putin's war, you know, but I would say that um, that's not really enough because we are feeling it very, very quickly. And although Putin's main, I guess, obsession is to keep his power, mm -hmm. I don't think that the fact that, say, these oligarchs' children who are very, you know, pro-West because they have, you know, 
Western degrees, and they have their nice home. Exactly, and, and they don't want to—they don't want all these sanctions to prevent them from being able to summer yeah. in, in Italy. But mm-hmm. um, I don't think that's enough to kind of change the political dynamics in Russia, which no. is what looks like the point of these sanctions are. So. Right, like he's like for decades he's been establishing his power going after rivals, right? Just and, right? Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, I just, so, I just like, make it clear. Yeah. Yeah. The ones who are right, the ones who are still around are 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 around for a reason. So, mm-hmm. no, no, I get it. Um, this has definitely been, as what V said, a culmination since 2014. Um, it's been written on the walls. Um, it's just we haven't. <laughs> it's just. Whatever reason, and I, I think before we um, podcasted on Thursday, uh, Wendell, who was on, stated that you know even here in D.C., um, even here in D.C., uh, there's a lot of senior national security people um, that's been working for with the U.S. government for decades who don't who generally don't know what to do, um, not even just about Ukraine, but like Putin and, and Russia and Russia's actions and why Putin is acting the way he is, because he's the way he's acting now is completely a, a complete 180 from how he presented himself since 1999. Um, and so, you know, getting the notions of he's just unraveling, he's angry, he's yelling at people, he's isolated himself, he sent his family to Siberia. Um, he isolated the head of their FBI, right? That too, he put him under house arrest. So you're just like a you fired Valerie Razumov. No, it's like um, your hero. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the the modern days you go. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, it's just the simple fact that there's not a lot of perceived national security experts in D.C. who who are literally stumbling on blocks and not understanding what to do um, in a situation is very, very. It's frightening to me. Mm-hmm. Um, not necessarily, you know, you know what's going on in Ukraine and Russia is definitely frightening, but the simple fact that even particular experts in national security that have been around for the past 30 years um, who were brought in uh, because of their quote-unquote expertise on either Putin or Russia or, such a, or whatever the case may be, they don't even know mm-hmm. how to address the situation. Um, that in itself is a national security blunder. Um, that speaks volumes, more volumes than sending F-16s over to Poland or giving tens of thousands of javelins to the Ukrainians. You can do that off the whim. But the the fact that your senior policy analysts, policy makers, those that were brought in to be geopolitical experts, threat assessors, etc., they don't know what to do. Um, It's a serious problem. Oh, yeah. You know, going off that, it's interesting. I think a lot of the policymakers, they think they can just throw money at the problem and it'll solve it itself. Does. Like, I mean, the Ukraine aid bill that we talked about earlier in, in the segment was, it was $13.6 billion to Ukraine. And then the bill also included, like, a bare, like, $1.4 million to, Indo, to Indo-PACOM, basically, the Indo-Pacific Affairs, i.e. to counter any Chinese influence in the region. So, I mean, I think, I think right now it's just policymakers are just thinking, oh, this can be like the Cold War, we'll throw a lot of money at it. And everyone else will solve the problem for us. Aid will solve it, or weapons interoperability will solve it. 
I don't know if that's going to cut it in this case. I think, I think Samaj is right. I think we need to have some kind of more prudent discussion about what needs to be done. But what do you think, Umi? You're, you got, oh, no, no, Veronica. You got, no, I'm, yeah. I'm so sorry. No, you're good, yeah. <laughs> I find that troubling only because I think that it's, I mean, I'm not going to pretend like I have a solution, but I think it's kind of ridiculous to not have expected Putin to act this way. Right. Just based on, like, I will give 2008 being a surprise. Mm -hmm. In Georgia, you mean? Yeah. Mm. Georgia, 2008, surprising the U.S. What? That's fine. But to th ever since then, I feel like it's been very obvious. Putin's very, very direct with his rhetoric, very anti-West. We hate Western values. We hate Western ethics. We will not be you know, subjected to these, these values, this culture, the, these ethics. And I think those right there kind of demonstrate he's not going to act in a way that you would expect him to act. You have to adapt your viewpoint of how you approach what his goals are and how he, he plans it. Because it's not only just in his rhetoric, but it's also you know in their national security strategy from 2021 mm -hmm. and 2015. He's very, very, very explicit about how the West is the enemy. We will not you know obey their rules. You know, the UN is a Western body. I think it's just, it's for me, I find it very troubling to hear that they, that they don't know why he's acting this way. Not knowing what to do, that's fine, because I don't know what to do about it specifically either. And I think that's a fair argument, because there's so much at stake with this specific war that's just beyond, like, Ukraine is important, but Ukraine is just the smallest part of it. There's so much more involved with it. But I would say that I find it troubling that they didn't, didn't haven't been working yeah. on this since 2014 three, three, on what they should yeah. do because it's happening it's coming well no going back to 08 like three different administrations have had about 15 years to look at this problem mm -hmm. and come up with some kind of contingency planning I, i'm it. shocked it was when he was uh, going to do this yeah and I, i'm shocked i would be shocked that the dod did not have at least like 15 different plans for this contingency and I'm, I'm kind of curious as to if they've presented this stuff to the national security council if they presented it to the president and what those groups have kind of said about this. Again, who, who knows, right? I, who I knows? Yeah. Um, but it's not even a matter of who knows, but you can see the answer to that who knows and how this situation is being addressed. Hmm. Where if you know we're saying one thing this day, we're saying another thing this what this, another day, um, and you know even our allies are, you know, they don't even know. It's like, well, there's your answer. We generally just don't know how to confront literally the first major conventional escalation since World War II. Um, but that also shows um, the point to a lot of, um, especially in 1990s thinkers like Francis Fukuyama, who tried to indicate that you know the triumph of liberal democracy was quote unquote the end of history. Um, the West is the best. Yeah, the West is the best, but it's like, well, at the same time, Samuel Huntington also stated in the Clash of Civilizations that there are particular uh, flashpoints where there will always essentially be conflict, and it's just a matter of well, which fraction and when, uh, and when yeah. it's going to occur. Um, not I, if. Not, it's not no, if. No, no, no. <clears throat> never, it's, it's never if. It's only a matter of when. Um, Unfortunately, we have those individuals who firmly believe that, uh, you know, we're past the time of conventional warfare. Um, and unfortunately, in my opinion, those types of people have too much power in politics. Um, saying that there will never, especially in the modern sense, there will never be conventional warfare, that you're neglecting 
a huge component of literally the transgression of history mm. where it doesn't matter if we had little pebbles or sticks or little tactical warheads there will always be a sense of a conventional confrontation it's just uh, it's just the the modus operandi of how it's going to occur um, and that's where essentially we are in this situation where we don't know where this is going to go did you say little tactical warheads? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what do you got? What do you got, Jay? I was thinking, like, I think you made a good point. Like, there's, like, you have these people who, who are in, who are, who believe, like, this idea that, you know, conventional warfare is done. Like, this is the, like, the Fukuyama, right? Mm-hmm. Like, the end of history, we're beyond this. There's, things are con- going to continue to happen. There's going to be conflict, but the realm of ideas is conquered. And it seems like, through like you mentioned like the transgression of history and like understanding like human nature like man is always like going to seek to fight right so and you have this like internal like strife i think within like america and like the greater west between these ideas of what what's the idea of how we're going to approach things and like in like the uppermost like meta realm of like thought in the complete realm of ideas and then that is like that internal conflict, I think, bleeds out. And now you have, we don't know what to do because we're too busy trying to solve the internal conflict, mm-hmm. the internal problems. And then now you have, oh, we should have expected this. This was the writing was on the wall. But then, oh, no, this isn't how the world works anymore. The, the, the mm-hmm. world order is set, is set in stone. And so now you, you're at an impasse, right? Um, so I think it's like up to future leaders to kind of use this as a lesson right Right. yeah that's what i said on on a different podcast i was like as as tragic as this situation is um this is a learning lesson um for humanity that just because it's 2022 it's not 1922 1822 etc um conflict and war will always be part of human nature. I mean, they didn't call it Pax Romana for a reason. They thought, oh, well, we've conquered the known world. Now we have peace. Well, no. No. The Egyptians back to differ. The Judea back to differ. Libya back to differ, etc. Pax Britannica. They're like, hey, we, have, we are ruling the waves. We dictate the peace. No. No. France would say no. Spain would say no. Portugal would say no. Germany would be like, mm, you, don't, you think. <laughs> you do now because we're not together. But <laughs> um, And then, you know, Pax Americana. Um, where that, we have that notion of we finally have this peace. Globalization is going smoothly. Liberal democracy is winning. Um, and then early 2000, China joins the um, gap in the World Bank. Um, and then ever since then, it's just been downhill. Um, but I think this has been a reasonable time for this podcast. Um, so we're in it here, 55 minutes, which is good. I mean, that's a little sit down chat. We talked about what we needed to. Yes, we did. And that's all that matters. (laughs) That's right. Um, so with that, we're going to end it here and, uh, until next time, much peace and love.